Alan Topol is the national best-selling author involving international intrigue, complicated plots with many twists and turns. He's a graduate of the Carnegie Institute of Technology, a chemistry major, who decided to abandon science to obtain a law degree from Yale. Also, a partner in a major Washington law firm and an avid wine collector, he's traveled the world extensively, researching dramatic locations for his novels. Welcome to my show, Chapter One. Alan, it's good to talk with you today. Very, very happy to be with you, Greg. Oh, thank, me. thank you. Thank you. Well, Alan, I, uh, I love spy novels. Uh, Nelson DeMille got me started in the 70s with my first read, The uh, Charm School, which was a uh, novel uh, about an American spy uh, uh, in Russia. Um, your latest book, The Russian Endgame, is the third and last in a series, the conclusion to a dangerous cat-and-mouse game with the Russian KGB. So, if you don't mind, would you set the tone and describe your character, Craig Page, who first appeared in The China Gambit, uh, a sequence to the, uh, and then sequence uh, to The Spanish Revenge, and lastly, uh, The Russian Endgame. This, this guy really seems to get around. <laughs> Well, he does. It's a funny thing what happened to me, Greg, because I wrote um, six novels, my first six novels, and they were all uh, international intrigue and suspense. They had different background issues. One of them actually dealt with Syria and serious efforts to acquire nuclear weapons. Another one dealt with Washington. But they all involved different characters. I never uh, repeated the same character. And then my seventh book, a novel called uh, the China Gambit uh, came out about um, two years ago, and I had my two lead characters in there, um, Craig Page and Elizabeth Crowder, um, and my villain, a Chinese General Chu. I really liked those characters, and as I came to the end of the book, I said, wait a minute, I want to continue them into um, one or more additional novels. And um, and I found out it it but it has advantages and disadvantages. The disadvantage is um, it's very tricky because you, I have to make sure that the next novels are all standalone so that somebody who's picked up my new book, which, by the way, just came out today, so you're my first interview, Greg, but somebody who picks up the novel um, can't assume that he's read the prior novels. It has to have standalone, enough background, so understand, but for the reader who's read the other two, it has to work also. And and I loved it because I got attached to the characters. Um, uh, Craig Page is somebody who had been with the CIA. He resents the arbitrariness of authority in the Washington bureaucracy, and as a result, he's kind of a solo player, and he wants to do things that are right, that make sense and he can't be shackled by the bureaucracy. So he ended up quitting the agency and going out on his own. Um, Elizabeth Crowder, his love interest, and the woman he teams up with, is um, she too is a pretty independent spirit. Is She's a newspaper reporter, but um, one fact about her shows her independence. Um, she loved to play baseball in high school, and, and after a huge fight, she ended up talking her way onto the men's baseball team where she was a pitcher. So she doesn't take, these are people who don't take no for an answer. And that's kind of the way I was attracted to them and got to know them and got to like them, uh, really. 
uh, it became fun then to work with the same characters. Well, did you craft these characters around um, folks you know, uh, have run into, your own life? Uh... Well, I did to some extent. Um, the crafting characters is always um, a fun part of writing um, for me because before I sit down to write a book is um, I will not only have a 50 or so page outline, but I also write a two or three page description of my characters, they're not just what they're like, but what their lives have been, what they've done. I'm only going to use a small amount of this information in the novel, but I want to get to know them so that I can put them into my mind and I can think for them. So um, as far as how to craft them, characters really become, to some extent, um, an extension or they have characteristics or traits of individuals that I've met along the way. I've been fortunate that I've been practicing as a lawyer at the same time that I've written the nine novels, and I've done a lot of international traveling. And and I, so as a result of people I've gotten to know um, in the U.S. and abroad, I've also, being in Washington, have gotten to know a lot of people in the intelligence community and they talk to me about others in the intelligence community. And all of this information filters around in the author's mind. I never know how I'm going to use it. It's like knowledge of places. And then when I sit down to write and I start to pull together the characters, then these various bits that have been percolating in my mind that I've picked up along the way come into it. And I have to admit, the other thing is um, there's a certain amount of fantasy in my Craig Page hero. Uh, fantasy for me, I mean, it's what, I have not been a spy. I've not been an international intrigue, uh, but it's something, gee, it's awfully exciting. People say, Arch, don't, don't you want to write a book about a lawyer? The answer is no. I want to write something exciting. I want to live vicariously through Craig Page, and I hope my readers will to some extent. Yeah, I, I got that impression. Um, you know, you remind me of Jeff Deaver. Um, he's a very intellectual guy. He's a connoisseur of fine wines. He's an international traveler and a lawyer like Baldacci and Steve Barry. Right. All you guys, lawyers turned novel writers. So why? I always ask them, why? Why'd you give up a, a you know, you still practice, right? Sure. Yeah, yeah. I do. But to some to, to a small extent. Happily, that's tapered down to about 15 or 20 percent as the novels have gotten big. You know, that's funny. You asked that question before I, I'll give you a serious answer. I was once, I was speaking to a luncheon, a, a, a women's luncheon out in, of, a, of a women's organization out in Southern California uh, a few years ago about one of my books. And so I talked for a while about the book, and then we had a question and answer, and, and somebody pops up in the back and raises her hand and says, why is it so many lawyers are, uh, you know, have become novelists? And and before I'm thinking about the question, before I have a chance to answer, uh, somebody in the audience pops up and she says, boredom. And so, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> so I don't know that it's that. But, but, you know, maybe it is to some extent, because uh, but let's try to intellectualize your your question, because it is a serious question. I think, for one thing, because as lawyers, we're working with words all the time, and writing and novels are about words. We're used to words, we're crafting words, um, we're constantly uh, writing, and so we have that. 
Secondly, as lawyers, we've learned the discipline that comes from from having to write a product, whether it's a brief, whether it's a contract. You have to have it done. You have to have it done at a certain time. So we're used to that. Those are two very important uh, characteristics in terms of uh, in terms of writing novels. And then to sort of take my earlier joke, there is a kind of a factor. I won't call it boredom, but a lot of us who are in law have kind of restless minds, and and we want to do something more. Um, uh, quite a few of us, other than just dealing with the nuts and bolts of of law practice, and so our restless minds, kind of uh, uh, that led us into law in the first place, um, kind of lead us out of it as well. Um, and we do meet a lot of interesting people, and we run up against a lot of uh, different interesting situations. And you think, hey, gee, fiction's a great outlet. So it's it's a combination of all those things. Yeah, good. I, I like that answer. Um, in your other books, like A Woman of Valor, yeah. um, you uh, you write about Israel and the Middle East. Um, Alan, being Jewish, being raised Jewish, um, you were born in the uh, 40s, uh, you went through the Cold War, um, you've seen a lot in your lifetime. So, personally, um, what's your take on uh, on all this crap that's been going on overseas in the sand? You know, the con- conflict with the Muslim world over the past few decades. Uh, what do you What do you see, man? What do you see coming up? Well, I see, I see an enormous amount of chaos that's going to continue because, um, for me, I think um, in the United States we have not fully appreciated um, the single biggest driver of what's happening in the Middle East. I mean, there was a focus on. Israel and the Palestinians, we have to beat up on Israel, and if they just get them to make peace with the Palestinians, everything will be solved in the Middle East. But that's not it. The single biggest factor that's driving much of which happens in the Middle East are two battles. The first is a battle between the Sunnis and the Shiites among the Muslim community, and that cannot be um, overestimated is what happened when Mohammed died. We're going back to the death of Mohammed. There was a battle over who should be his successor. Mm-hmm. One group thought it should pass to people who were descended from Mohammed. The other group felt that it should pass, that the, a committee of elders should decide who's the most qualified to lead the religion. And that conflict touched off a bloody war. And one group became Shiites, one group became Sunnis. They are still fighting that battle. That explains the entire situation in Iraq. It's a battle between Sunnis and Shiites. Um, it explains the conflict between, because that country has both communities, it explains the conflict between Iran and much of the Arab world. Iran, although not Arab, is Shiite. It explains the civil war situation in Lebanon. Um, it explains the war, the bloody war in Syria, because Assad's religion, his his clan, the Alawites, are an offshoot of Shiites. They are in conflict with Sunnis, 
And so that's number one. That conflict is going to continue year after year, and that mess will continue, and there is no way we can resolve that. The second conflict, which is the, which explains what's happening, is the battle between secularists and, and the religious elements, right. the Islamists. Right. That's the battle in Egypt. It's the battle, to some extent, in Libya. That battle is going to continue because the jihadists, the Islamists, are on the rise. And so um, everything in the Middle East just about can be explained with one of those two conflicts. And it's it's sort of ironic, after years of focusing on Israel and the Palestinians, that's almost a sideshow at this point. Mm-hmm. And that happens to be one of the few places that's, that's peaceful. Hopefully, Kerry won't come in and stir up that... Um, that situation, which yeah. is at least dormant right now. Yeah. Well, also, also, I, I see, uh, you know, the British went in <laughs> years and years ago, drew some lines. The United States have gone in, uh, drew some lines. Um, and we all know that, uh, uh, that these, uh, uh, let's say, tribes – um, right. have, have been there from day one. I mean, they, they've been fighting each other from day one. We can go back to the 11th and 12th century um, or the 12th and 13th century, you know, um, the holy wars and everything else. Uh, we've got the, we've got the uh, Roman um, uh, walk uh, all the way to, uh, to Africa, you know. Uh, so do we leave them alone, Alan? Um, you know, uh, I, I have a hard time sometimes uh, understanding the mission of the United States. Um, I, I'm a veteran. Um, I'm, I'm an American. Um, uh, I have a, a tremendous amount of patriotism, yet, um, you know, I've lived through some things and, and seen uh, we've made some very bad moves over the past decades. We have, and and let me say, Greg, and answer your question. First of all, I'm very, very happy to hear you say what you did about the British went in and drew some lines because because that's something I've been talking about and writing about, <laughs> and a lot of people don't appreciate it. Just the fact that you draw some lines on a map and say, this will be Iraq, doesn't make Iraq a country. I mean, doesn't make Lebanon a country because you draw some lines on a map. Ultimately, you're right. The societies are governed by by almost clans, and that's that's the way it's always been, and that's the way it will be. And this arbitrary line drawing isn't going to do any good. The other thing is, which you're right on point, is we have to recognize the limits of what the United States can do with its power. Mm. And where you said, you know, mistakes were made and we haven't solved problems is, it's absolutely true. The hatred between Shiites and Sunnis in Iraq is going to continue. And unless we're going to be there or somebody else is there as a policeman, there is no way that that group of people is going to live in peace. It's just not going to happen. And so I think we have to recognize the limits of what of what we could do. 
I mean, when our president said at the beginning of his term that Obama, that Afghanistan was a war of necessity, you know, I shrugged my shoulders, said, what, huh? A war of necessity for whom? I mean, it's hard to see that we have an interest in, in Afghanistan. And it's just, you know, it's, it's simply not, obviously, we have an interest to the extent it's harboring terrorists who want to attack the United States. We have an interest. But we are not going to be able to solve all of these civil wars, and they're just going to continue. I mean, you and I remember back in the Eisenhower period, um, the war in Lebanon. That was the first time we were getting involved in Lebanon. It was sort of a big deal. But we haven't solved any of the problems in Lebanon, and, and they're basically intractable because of the conflicts we talked about. I just hate to see us losing men and pouring money into something we can't solve. I really do. Well, my, my biggest question is, um, are we ever going to learn? <laughs> um, the answer is probably no. Yeah. <laughs> I, mean, I, I wish, knew you were going to say I, that, Alan. I wish, I wish it were, really. I mean, but, you know, but along those lines, what, what I, you know, but I'm, I'm trying my best because I write novels <laughs> that try to weave. I want them to be page turners, keep the reader up at night. But I want the reader to come away learning something and knowing something about the world. And so one of the things that I work into this newest book, The Russian Endgame, is the concept that a, a resurgent Russia is now expanding its military and forming an alliance with China. And one of their objectives is to steal advanced U.S. defense technology. Now, when I gave that to my editor uh, about a year ago, he said, well, you know, I'm not sure the idea about Russia. I mean, this isn't the Cold War anymore and so forth. I said, um, stick with me on this. I said, <laughs> Russia's on the move again. And here we are a year, a year and a half later. And they're coming back to being the villains again. I mean, and so nothing's really changed. And when you said, don't we learn? I mean, it just it makes you wonder. I don't, I don't think we do. But now we do have to deal and contend with Russia, and we have to deal with a very strong and increasingly armed China. And I'm writing my novels in part not just to entertain, but to be a kind of a wake-up call for Americans about what's happening that's of tremendous importance to us or should be. Yeah, I um, I like the term wake up. Um, as I read uh, novelists like yourself, um, I, I, see, I see some things in history that is being retaught, reintroduced to these young kids who are not being taught history. Um, I remember going to school in the 50s and 60s, learning about world history, American history. Uh, it's, it's, it, it, it baffles me on how many kids don't know about um, how we got here. You know, uh, everybody thinks that uh, we were here in the 1700s. Well, I'm sorry, we were here in the 1600s, right. you know. I mean, exactly. I grew Yeah, and and... So I love I love the uh, I love the introduction I love um, or, or the inclusion of of history, and uh, th these are things that uh, are not taught anymore, uh, which bothers me, you know. 
Uh, well, I think you're right, because it does play into what's happening in the world. Right. I mean, for example, I've spent a fair amount of time in connection with research on my novels about the history of China, which yeah. is a fascinating um, history, because um, many people, or most people, kind of think, well, China's history really began in the, within the last century with Mao and all that. It was a pretty primitive society before then. But the reality is, at the end of the 18th century, we're talking about 1790. Mm -hmm. At that point, China's GDP, its gross domestic product, mm -hmm. exceeded the gross domestic product of Western Europe. Mm -hmm. China um, was consuming more luxury goods than Western Europe. China was a real, economically, a power in the world, and a major, major country. Then the Western Europeans, largely led by the British, um, managed to inflict and destroy um, the Chinese economy. The Chinese did not adapt to the Industrial Revolution. They fell enormously behind, and now they're playing a rapid game of catch-up. Right. But hey, they didn't come from nowhere. They came from a very powerful economy and very major country and that's that's kind of important and that history is important to understand what they're doing and what their plans are so you're absolutely right when you say that the history is is critical to understanding what's going on and i like to try to weave some of it into into my novels yeah <laughs> thank you <laughs> well listen um uh, we got to get off uh, on an, on uh, some personal stuff real quick. Sure, um, sure, sure. What do you like to do to relax, bud? Okay, what I like <laughs> to do for fun is I love, uh, first of all, playing tennis. I love playing tennis. Yeah. I love the exercise. I like the competition. I like walking, not just because it's good exercise, but I like walking because um, my ideas pop into my head about what I want to write about. Yeah. I love traveling and um, not just to research places for novels, but I go to places, and I think, gee, this is an interesting place. Um, I enjoyed it, um, and I'm going to work it into a novel. It's what happened to me in northern Italy, lake country, and it's, I'm doing a book about Italy. I also uh, love wines, collect wines uh, from different places, and I like, uh, I like restaurants and, uh, mm. and eating. But the traveling, I really love to do. But th those are kind of my, uh, yeah. my diversions. Yeah, you and Deaver. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, you got any... Uh... Uh, other hobbies, um, or just uh, other than tennis? I mean, uh, uh, you, no, got, you got any pets or? Nah, nah, yeah. tennis, right. ten 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 tennis and wine collecting. Yeah. Those are my uh, those are my two big uh, my two big hobbies I'm, on the. I'm sure you watched. Thing. I'm sure you watched Roth, uh last night. He uh, he beat Djokovic. I'm sure you watched that game. Or did you miss yeah, it? Yeah, yeah, I did, but um, I, I'm sorry you brought up last night. I unfortunately <laughs> live in Washington, and I'm a Washington Redskins football oh, fan. For and, uh, it was a very bad night. I wish it was a bad up. night. Maya Kupla to you. <laughs> right, it was. It was a bad night. But hey, I'm feeling it couldn't even diminish my spirits because, the, as I say, the Russian Endgame, the new novel, just came out in the in the stores today, and. Uh, so I'm I'm pretty excited, and I made some adjustments to my website because it's yeah. it's out, and so it's uh, anyhow. So I'm I'm you know notwithstanding all that, I'm you know in a terrific mood about uh, about about all of that. The uh, yeah. 
Uh, so anyhow, and the website describes all my books, as I know, because oh, yeah. you've been a- up on that. A- absolutely. Well, you know I, I, I want to thank you for the advanced copy of the of Russian Endgame. Um, we've been uh, we've had an interesting uh, talk with Alan Topol. Um, I want to uh, thank KISU and the Marshall Public Library for uh, sponsoring this show. Alan, well, I... Go ahead. Yes. I really enjoyed it. I, I love chatting with you because you cover a lot of different subjects. And I think it's uh, I think it's just just terrific to uh, to be able to talk with you, Greg. And uh, thank you. Alan. Uh, I, uh, yeah. I, I enjoy talking to intellectual people uh, who get it. Uh, a lot of people don't get it out there, Alan. So yep. you're one of those guys who gets it. Um, and uh, we're going to try to push this book for you as much as we can. Well, I sincerely appreciate it, and I'm going to pop an autographed copy out in the mail to you. Thank you very much, sir. Um, Be safe. Pleasure. Hope to talk to you when the next book comes out. I would love to. Thank you very much, sir. Take care. Bye-bye.